Today we are coming down the mountain. You guys remember we just went through the whole Sermon on the Mount um, the last, we spent three months on it and then we took the summer off. But in the storyline of the Gospel of Matthew today, we are coming down the mountain. So Jesus has concluded his Sermon on the Mount. And today we're going to encounter um, and read through one of the, the first stories of um, what it looks like to actually embody and practice and what it looks like for God's kingdom to come, not only in word, but in deed. As Jesus is going to move into uh, kind of five successive miracles that are all expressing the grace of God. And so this week we're, I don't know if you have a slide. Actually, it doesn't even matter. We're going to go through five different um, miracles of grace. Today we're going to start with the leper. Next week, we're going to talk about the centurion's son, Peter's mother-in-law the week after that, and then the two chaos miracles, the disciples in the storm and the demoniac. So we've got five miracles of grace coming up, which raises the question, what is grace? What is grace? Let me read a few quotes to you. What is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. Paul Zoll, what a name. Another quote, what is grace? Grace is unfair. We deserve God's wrath and get God's love, deserve punishment and get forgiveness. We don't get what we deserve. Paul put it ironically, the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. We work hard for wages, which vanish at death. We do nothing to deserve grace and get life eternal. If you want fairness, try a religion like Hinduism, which says we have to go through thousands, even millions of incarnations before paying for all our sins. It's unfair that a human rights abuser like Saul gets forgiven or a murderer slash adulterer like King David or a thief hanging on a cross who has a conversion just before death. Yes, it's unfair, gloriously unfair, I would say. Grace means that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics and renunciations. No amount of knowledge gained from seminaries or divinity schools. No amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace is unfair. That's Philip Yancey. Grace, my friends, is scandalous. Grace is shocking, and grace, when properly understood and seen, will be breathtaking. And we have to think about it this way. Grace is an inextricable part of who God is. Grace is a part of who God is. In his self-disclosure statement that we spent a whole few weeks talking about years ago, uh, where, where God, Yahweh, is talking to Moses in Exodus, one of the words he uses to describe himself in about, about his nature and character, when you're wondering what I'm really like, he's, he's going to tell us what he's really like. He says, I'm gracious. God is gracious. And sadly, I would say this is one of the least clear points we have in our pictures of God. This is the thing we probably most easily and quickly forget. We operate under the assumption that God relates to us based on what we've done. Anyone else? If I'm good enough, then God will love me. If I'm not good enough, God won't love me. Or what's been done to us. And the invitation we see is how do we learn how to relate to God based on who he is? Not who we are and what we've done or has been done to us. 
Because who he is, he is always. He is unchanging and unfailing. And this is shocking to us human beings who struggle to maintain integrity from one relationship to another, from one day to the, to the next. I was patient yesterday and today I can't even stand to wait for two seconds. God, however, is consistent, constant. God is gracious, meaning God does something. Grace is an action word. It means like a parent, God comes to the rescue when his kids need help. Most poignantly in the Son, Jesus Christ, who in John's prologue is described as one full of grace and truth. Swiss theologian Karl Barth puts it this way, Grace means that God does some quite definite thing. Not a thing here and a thing there, but something quite definite in men. Grace means that God forgives men their sins. God does not give us what we deserve or what we have earned. We, collectively, could never earn forgiveness of sins, even if we combined all of our best days, our best efforts, our best philanthropic ideas, all of these would amount to nothing. But the good news is that He absorbs the cost for us. He acts on our behalf to rescue us from sin, Satan, death, and hell. Not because of who we are or what we've done or what's been done to us, but because of who He is. He is gracious. And so in these five miracles, we're going to see Jesus begin His ministry with the people with whom we would most likely end. The people we very easily overlook or rather have nothing to do with. We're going to see Jesus moving towards the most ostracized, overlooked outsiders to display over and over the unfair, breathtaking grace of God. Jesus, the great wall breaker, welcoming all into the family of God. The radical love of God for the outsiders, a group to which we all belong in one way or another. So today, we're going to begin with the story of the leper. So if you guys have your Bibles... Let's open up to the Gospel of Matthew. This is chapter 8, and we'll read the first four verses together. When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing. Be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And then Jesus told him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we want to see you as you really are. We begin our morning in, in the text, and we just want to declare that, God, you are gracious. And we don't understand fully what that means, but I ask that by the end of this morning, by the end of this, you know, 30 minutes, that we'd have a greater glimpse of what your grace looks like. That we would begin to see your grace that's already been unfolding in our lives and in the lives of the people we love and care about and the people that we live next to that we're just getting to know. God, you're up to something. And so would your grace be unleashed this morning? Would that be the thing that animates these dry bones that Brandon was just talking about? A reminder, a refreshment, a reorientation around the good news of grace. The radical love you have for us, God, in the most unfair ways, 
We don't deserve grace and forgiveness and love and mercy, yet you give it to us lavishly. And so would all we do be out of a place of gratitude and thankfulness and teach us how to love the way we've been loved. We love you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Holy Spirit, anoint my mouth to, te- to speak the good news of Jesus. Father, forgive the one who teaches his many sins. and Help me love the way you love. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember a few years ago, I was going to be meeting with a new couple who had checked out our church, and someone else in our community knew this couple and was going to meet with them, and they said, hey, when you meet them, you have to talk like you talk. And I was like, what? They're like, I mean, they're really like formal. Don't say like, what's up, dude? How's it going, man? Like, don't talk how you talk. And I was like, what? Has anyone ever told you guys that? It messes with you. And so I go into the bathroom, I'm like rehearsing, like, what do I, hello, good sir. Like, what do, what, what do you do? <laughs> Greetings. Um, but you know, like when you're, do you ever have to like rehearse what you're going to say when you're going to meet someone new? Like you're into a new setting, a new situation. You're like, okay, how do I, how do I start the conversation? How do I get this going? What do I say all the time? Someone said, um, some people do it in accents even I've heard, but, um, you didn't need to say that. You didn't need to out yourself, but, um, (laughs) there's grace. Grace is unfair, but, um, so I found myself talking into the mirror. Like, how do I even start this conversation? How do I make a good first impression? But it's interesting when we think about this story of the leper, their introduction was decided for them. So those living in Israel with, with leprosy had to announce anytime they came around other people, unclean, unclean, unclean. They had to cover their mouth. They had to wear clothes that were shredded. They had to let their hair grow unkempt. And more often than not, they were actually outside. They were definitely outside the city and they were outside the camp. This was their first impression that they gave to people. Could you imagine? So at the time in Israel, lepers would have been the most ostracized of all people. They were considered the living dead. And they were, of course, in in the whole realm of, of being ceremonially unclean or being able to come into the presence of God. They were ceremonially unclean in the worst way. There were other ways of becoming unclean that could have been dealt with with a sacrifice in a few days' time, but they were living in a state of, of, of uncleanness. They were unfit to come back into God's presence. And they lived in this continual state of uncleanness. And they were told, get away from us, go outside the camp. They were the outsider of the outsiders. And what's interesting is, okay, the leper approaches Jesus right as he's descending down the mountain, right as he's finished his Sermon on the Mount. And this is pretty remarkable as we think about what what the traditional inhibitions and societal stigmas would have been at that time. And there's something I think worth noting and paying attention to that as Matthew is laying out his gospel to the people of Israel, he chose to put this story here for a purpose. Jesus begins, and Matthew is is picking this up, he begins with the most marginalized person. And so this most marginalized person who would have to declare unclean, unclean as he comes in to the group of people, kneels before Jesus in a posture of worship, It would seem that Matthew is drawing our attention right away to the deity of Jesus. And what does the leper say? Lord, if you're willing, or some translations say this, if you want to, you can make me clean. He did not say, let's pay attention to what he did not say. If you are able, you can make me clean. 
The leper's question has nothing to do with Jesus' capability. He is convinced that Jesus is capable and ready to help him and able to help him. I, I imagine he would have had heard stories about Jesus healing people before even maybe the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he traveled to come like, to know this rabbi who was healing the sick. But the question he is asking is, are you able to do something even for me? The most ostracized of all ostracized. Would you be able to do something like that for somebody like me? I'm unclean. I am the most outside of outsiders. Would you do something like that for me? He does not ask to be healed. He asks to be made clean. And this is interesting. He's asking for something deeper than just physical healing. The most unclean Israelite there is, is asking to be made clean. February 16th and 17th, 2023. Do these dates ring a bell for anyone? Maybe this will jog your memory. If it appears to be deeper than the skin and the hair and it is yellow and sparse. No. When a boil appears on the skin of someone's body and it heals and a white swelling or a reddish white spot develops where the boil was. Yeah, Hannah's getting it. If the scaly outbreak spreads further on the skin after his cleansing, or if a man loses the hair on his head, he is bald but is clean, or if he loses the hair at his hairline, he is bald on his forehead. Guys, come on. Leviticus 13 and 14. Come on. Everyone's favorite passage of Scripture. Skin diseases, contaminated fabrics, sprinkling blood on earlobes or thumbs in the right hand. Come on. Tattoo idea for anyone who wants scripture, Leviticus 13 and 14. But Leviticus matters. It's outlining the priesthood, purity rituals, and guidelines so that God's people could live in his presence. Remember, the big story of the Bible, the big story of God is he wants us to live with him. We want to live with God. He wants us to live with him. How does this happen? How do unclean people come into the presence of the purest being that there is? God's holiness is so pure and good that it poses a paradox for humans living in a world ruined by sin. So just a few quick thoughts. God's holiness is his set-apartness and uniqueness. His power and purity is the source of all life and sustains our very existence. But his power and purity can become dangerous to mortal humans corrupted by sin, people like you and me. This paradox is seen most clearly in the dangerous goodness of God's presence living in Israel's midst in the tabernacle and the temple. Remember, people who would go into the presence of God who were unclean would actually fall over dead and they have to pull them out. So they had to wear bells on the bottom of their um, garments so that they knew that they were still moving around. So the temple had to be kept separate from all types of impurity that would defile God's holy presence. Only holy priests were allowed into God's direct presence in the temple, and even they were in danger if they did not honor God's holiness. So I want us to think about it this way. This is an analogy I heard from Tim Mackey, who's so smart. I'm going to try to do it as well as he did. But he talked about the holiness of God in the same way that an a hospital operating room is holy. So how many of you have ever been in a hospital operating room, if you don't mind saying? So a few of us. How many of us have been in a hospital? Most of us, okay. So buildings in our towns that, that most of us have been into, but there is a special room that a lot of us haven't been into. A lot of us haven't been into the operating room. Very few of us have. 
And if we've been there, it's for a very special purpose and with certain circumstances in a set amount of time. There's a reason why you're there. You're not just going in there, hanging out, you're not waltzing in off the street, just checking stuff out like, oh, there's a scalpel over here. You're actually there for a real purpose. You could say it's holy. It's set apart and it's unique compared to the rest of the hospital that, that's there. And what is this room set apart and unique for? Surgery. And surgery, which is often to deal with the life-threatening conditions that one may have, or to save life or to improve the quality of life of the person that's being operated upon. So there's a special room that's set apart for a special purpose. And these purposes are carried out by specific people, right? Like I'm not going to waltz in and do an operation on someone. I have no training. I have not been set apart. I don't know how that works. So who does the surgery? Surgeons, doctors, and nurses. They're there to do a very specific thing. And there's even a process that all these things are, there's a, there's a way things are done. There's rituals. There's, there's people who are set apart for a purpose. There's a special room. And there's a process to do before entering into that operating room. Anyone ever watched ER or Grey's Anatomy or House or one of the other millions of doctor shows? You got to scrub in. You're in there for a long time just scrubbing off your hands and getting all clean. You become sterilized. You probably want to take off your dirty clothes that you walked in on. And you got to put on those other special green looking scrubs or whatever they're called. And so these are rituals all around this being a special place set apart for the unique purpose of saving lives. This is the same thing with God's holiness. But outside of the operating room, there exists all types of unsanitized, dirty, unclean things that could contaminate this very holy set apart place. So don't come in with the shoes you came in on with dog poop on them when you're about to operate on someone. Or don't forget to wear your mask so your runny nose doesn't leak into that person that you're operating on. Ew. This is intuitive. This makes sense to us, right? And so it is with God, the author of life and all that is good and beautiful and just and pure. So when God wants to take up personal residence amongst our, uh, his people, they too are to become like that, to reflect that in their own lives. There's a distinction between the holiness of God and anything that could defile it. So for the people of Israel, they were very aware of the clean and unclean parameters in, in their, their daily lives, which makes this story even more category blowing. Let me read a quote from Dane Ortland on the categories of clean and unclean. In biblical terms, these categories generally refer not to physical hygiene, but to moral purity. These two cannot be completely disentangled, but moral or ethical cleanness is the primary meaning. This is evident in that the solution for uncleanness was offering a sacrifice, not taking a bath. The problem was not dirt, but guilt. The Old Testament Jews, therefore, operated under a sophisticated system of degrees of uncleanness and various offerings and rituals to become morally clean once more. One particularly striking part of this system is that when an unclean person comes into contact with a clean person, that clean person becomes unclean. Moral dirtiness is contagious. So consider Jesus. In Levitical categories, he is the cleanest person to ever walk the face of the earth. He was the clean one. Whatever horrors cause us to cringe, we who are naturally unclean and fallen would cause Jesus to cringe all the more. We cannot fathom the sheer purity, holiness, cleanness of his mind and heart, the simplicity, the innocence, the loveliness. You guys okay? Okay, we're going to keep going. 
Flip back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, and let's read another story that is often quoted in the, around the holiness of God. Some of you might even be able to quote it yourselves without even having to turn there. And good for you. We believe in grace here. <laughs> All right, so Isaiah chapter 6, and I'm going to read for us the first few verses. So let's think about this paradigm of clean and unclean. God's a holy God. We're not holy. How can we come into his presence? How does that work? And if sin is contagious or uncleanness is, con is contagious, how does this work? So Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I said, Woe to me! Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. So going back to our operating room analogy, Isaiah is in the operating room in his work clothes with dog poop on his shoes. He should not be there. Why are you here? And his expression of being a man of unclean lips and living among people of unclean lips is an admission to living a morally corrupt life. He's saying, I should not be here. I should not be here. He is terrified for his life. But what we're going to read in a couple seconds is entirely surprising. Okay, so let's keep reading. Let's pick up in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal, a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. What we read here is that instead of the temple becoming contaminated by Isaiah's impurity, the opposite happens. God's holiness transfers to Isaiah and erases both his sin and his impurity. Did you guys catch that? So another way of thinking about this is perhaps God doesn't need to be protected by the impurity of our sin. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's our sin that is endangered by God's Perhaps God, doesn't need, perhaps God doesn't need to be protected by the impurity of our sin. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's our sin that is endangered by God's holiness. This would seem to be illustrated in what comes next in our story in Matthew. The leper asked, you could heal me if you want to. You could make me clean. And Jesus, the sinless one, the clean one, the holy, holy, holy one reaches out his hand and grabs him. It's almost the same action, right? The angel brings over the coal. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the unclean one. If Jesus had been standing at a distance and only spoken his healing, this would be a different miracle altogether. Think about the miracle of grace that this is. Jesus, the holy one, reaching out and touching the most unclean person in sight. One who hasn't, in all likelihood, been touched for who knows how long. 
This would have been shocking to all, including the leper. He's probably like, what is, I did not expect that. This is the work of God. The good news that, the God, that God's kingdom has come near. And it touches even the most unclean and vile parts of our broken humanity. Dane Ortland again. And what do we do when, what, what did he do, talking about Jesus, what did he do when he saw the unclean? What was his first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart, the longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. We can all testify to the humanness of touch. A warm hug does something warm words of greeting alone cannot. But there is something deeper in Christ's touch of compassion. He was revealing the Jewish system. When Jesus Sorry, he was reversing the Jewish system. When Jesus, the clean one, touched the unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. Amen? Hallelujah. That's good news. Jesus reaches out to him, answering the leper's question, if you, you can make me clean if you want to. And then Jesus actually says these words, I want to. I want to be clean. Dale Bruner says this, It's easy to believe that Jesus' touch alone healed the man, but Jesus adds words to interpret his touch. Deeds often need clarification. Word without deed is unimpressive, but deed without word is unclear. So Jesus says the words the man most needs to hear. Listen to this. And those words supported by Jesus' grip, he says this, I want to. I want to. Be clean. The main thing the leper needed to know was that Jesus wants to cleanse him. And this is about the heart. This is about a question of, okay, what is the heart of Christ? What is the heart of Jesus that's revealed here? The heart of the leper and the heart of of Jesus are both revealed revealed here. This is a question to clarify desire. The word will in both the leper's request and Jesus' response is the Greek word for wish or desire. The leper was asking about Jesus' deepest desire, and Jesus revealed his deepest desire by, in fact, healing him. And what we have to remember is that Jesus' character mirrors the character of the Father. God is gracious, remember? He acts. He gives us not what we deserve. He gives us divine favor, restorative love, radical love for the outsiders. So let me address uh, what some of your minds might be thinking right now. I was, I was always taught that God can't be in the presence of sin. It would appear that it is our sin, our brokenness, our suffering that is most irresistible and attractive to Jesus. The very things about ourselves we try to fix on our own or hide behind smoke and mirrors, these are the things that draw Jesus to us. He is the friend of sinners. He is the embodiment of grace. He is God with us. And what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus' most natural instinct is to move toward sin and suffering and not away from it. When Jesus, the clean one, touched an unclean sinner, Christ did not become unclean. The sinner became clean. He does this because he knows that he is the remedy we are all longing to find. He is the operating room and the surgeon. Jesus is the new temple, 
the place where God's holiness meets people in their sin and uncleanness. And in its stead, he offers forgiveness of sins apart from the temple and said his death was a sacrifice that covered for the sins of all mankind. This means that Jesus can help us with our deepest problems. Not only that, not only that he can, but he wants to. Our fears, our anxieties, our shame, our sin. There is more holiness in God than there is sin in you. This high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He can't bear to hold back. So Jesus reaches out, touches him. He says, I will be clean. And then we read this line. And immediately he was cleansed from his leprosy. The order of the words in the Greek sentence emphasized the word his like this. And immediately he was cleansed from his leprosy, suggesting that Matthew was asking the reader, and your problem? One commentary I was reading this week said, why did Matthew place this miracle first right after hearing the Sermon on the Mount? And he suggests, maybe we all feel pretty unclean. Immediately he was cleansed from his leprosy. What about your problem? Dale Bruner again. It is surprising that the leper didn't ask to be made clean, which would of course have been perfectly in order. A confidence that is deeper than even a question characterizes this man's feelings about Jesus. If you want to, you can. We learn from this specific healing in the gospel that faith is not a general belief in God. It is a particular trust in God's Son and His ability to help us with our deepest problems. The leper's deepest problem was on the surface and, and pretty easy to, to, to identify. What about the things that are the deepest problems for you and I? Maybe they're not as front of mind or present, like seen by everyone around us, but what are your deepest problems? Maybe as those things come to the surface, I want to tell you the good news. There's nothing you have done. There's nothing that's been done to you. There's nothing that you could ever do that God is not able to forgive or heal or redeem. Nothing. We will run out of ways to sin long before God will run out of grace. We will run out of ways to sin long before God will run out of grace. This is good news. I imagine the leper, uh, after this encounter, just imagine him going home, like talking to people he hasn't talked to in forever, telling the good news of Jesus. You know, Jesus instructs him, hey, don't, don't tell anyone. Like, I'm trying to keep a low profile still. And also, go, go, go to the temple and just show them. So there's almost like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill what I'm, I'm coming to fulfill, but I'm not, I have nothing to prove. So he's like, hey, just go tell them. And then, like, leper by leper, I'm going to show you how the kingdom is coming. So imagine the leper goes home. Imagine the, the sense of deep compassion and empathy he would have for everyone he encountered. Having an encounter with Jesus like he did would be life-altering and paradigm-shifting in so many ways I couldn't even imagine. But the trajectory I'm trying to paint here is that when we allow Jesus to, to make us clean, 
When we own up to our own, what is your problem? What is your issue? The same thing is possible for us. An experience of forgiveness and grace will lead us towards the other outsiders in our time. And this story raises the question, who are the outsiders in our time? Who are the outsiders? I'm not going to try to fill in the blank for you, but think about that. Who are the outsiders in our time? My prayer for us is that Jesus would encounter, encounter us in such a way that we move towards the same ones he would move towards. The ostracized, the forgotten, the overlooked. That we'd move towards them not with judgmentalism, but with grace and compassion and empathy. And all the while sharing our own stories of God's incredible grace and forgiveness and mercy. I was blind and now I can see. I was dead and now I'm alive. Philip Yancey again. The Christian life, I believe, does not primarily center on ethics or rules, but rather involves a new way of seeing. I escape the force of spiritual gravity when I begin to see myself as a sinner who cannot please God by any method of self-improvement or self-enlargement. Only then can I turn to God for outside help, for grace. And to my amazement, I learn that a holy God already loves me despite my defects. I escape the force of gravity again when I recognize my neighbors, also as sinners, loved by God. A grace-full Christian is one who looks at the world through grace-tinted glasses. My prayer is that we begin to see the people around us with grace-tinted glasses. Let me just tell you guys one story that came to mind during pre-service prayer. Many of you guys know we got a dog, and I don't like this dog, okay? Bear with me. Keep, keep, stay with me. Um, and so we're walking around. We're trying to get to know our neighbors. And so last night we're walking and we bump into someone I've seen tons of times before. And we start talking. It turns out having a dog is a great way to meet your neighbors. And um, you guys already knew this. I'm not telling you anything new. But the thing is with Ginny, I had this, this thought a couple years ago and I was staring at Ginny. It was her first birthday. And I, I woke up with this thought. I was like, the things I don't like about Ginny are the things I don't like about me. Things that annoy me about Ginny are the things that annoy me. So I wrote down a few. I actually wrote her a birthday card. I won't read you the whole thing, but it's God's grace. So I'll just read. Ginny reminds me of me, a truly humbling thought. I began to wonder if the reason I can't stand her is, th- is that she reminds me of myself, more specifically of the parts of me that are unlovable, her messiness, her need for constant affection and attention, her barking about things that don't matter, her general lack of utility, her digging up the garden and wrecking the grass, her licking my feet. And as I sat and was undressed by this thought, I began to wonder, maybe God is extending an invitation to me through this. I do regret buying Ginny, let me be clear. She was so expensive, and like always, things aren't going as planned, and our lives would be simpler if she wasn't around. But what if the redemptive edge to this purchase is seeing Ginny, uh, uh, is seeing Ginny can help me become more like Jesus? What if I saw Ginny as a tool to help me learn to love the unlovable parts of myself, the parts that require extra attention and need training, the parts that are loud and obnoxious, the parts that dig into things that don't need to be unearthed, the parts that are needy and lack self-awareness, the parts that only think about myself, the parts I'd never thought I'd have to face. I wonder. Well, happy birthday, Virginia. 
I've decided I I'm going to learn to love you. <laughs> okay, why I'm sharing that is, is I wonder if in this process of us learning how to love our neighbors, the, the thing that's going to connect us is, Ginny again is representing the things I don't love about myself. What if that guy has all these things he doesn't love about himself too? And the thing that connects us is that brokenness, is that need for help, that need for grace, that need for a savior. What if that's the very thing our neighbors are looking for? What, is, what if that's the way that we learn to look at the world with grace-filled glasses? Just a thought. So back to this story here. Matthew is drawing our attention to the wall-breaking Jesus whose holiness is contagious, who is undeterred by any form of uncleanness or sin, who is willing and able to heal, who touches those despised and ostracized parts of ourselves for all to see. He is not ashamed of you. He wants to give you back your humanity. We begin, we began with grace and we're going to end with grace. Everything we've talked about today is based on the character of God. He is holy and he is gracious. He is compassionate. None of this dependent on you and I, like Jess was reminding us this morning. We're not, we don't make God who he is. We just get to learn about who he is. He gives grace because he is gracious. We don't earn this. This is a gift. And for those of us in Christ, God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us himself, a restorative touch in the place of deepest shame and embarrassment. He cleanses us from all our sin and unrighteousness because he is gracious. He acts. He does something most decisive because that is who he is. The friend of sinners, the wall breaker, the clean one. Make us clean, Jesus. We know you want to. Amen.